Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. In August of this year, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks announced the Replicator Initiative, a new program to field thousands of less costly autonomous weapon systems aimed directly at offsetting China's growing advantages in the Pacific. The ambitious program is set to deliver all within the next 18 to 24 months. But is the defense industry able to deliver on that promise? With new defense programs taking sometimes a decade or more to reach the battlefield, what is needed to transform the way the Pentagon develops new technology? Can it keep up with the accelerating pace of change, especially with the drones and AI? To find out, we're speaking with Mike Brown, who served as the director of the Defense Innovation Unit at the Department of Defense. He also led the Defense Department-sponsored investment vehicle, National Security Innovation Capital, which funded dual-use technology companies. Prior to working in government, he served as the CEO of Symantec, Quantum, and Chairman of Equalogic. He is currently a partner at the dual-use venture capital firm Shield Capital and a visiting scholar at Stanford University. And by retired Rear Admiral Lauren Selby, who until this year was the Navy's Chief of Naval Research. He's also served as a submarine officer in acquisitions, as a nuclear engineer, and on the legislative side as Deputy Director in the Navy Office of Legislative Affairs for the House. We are also joined by Steve Blank, adjunct professor at Stanford and a co-founder of the Gordian Knot Center for National Security Innovation. He is an entrepreneur and founder of multiple startups in Silicon Valley, the author of The Four Steps to the Epiphany, credited with launching the Lean Startup Movement, and most recently, the Startup Owner's Manual. Gentlemen, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. We've got a real stacked deck today. I appreciate you all taking the time. I want to talk about the Replicator program, which all three of you have discussed online, but really I want to dive into something that might sound wonky to a lot of people, but is a real challenge. What does the U.S. need to change the defense industrial base systemically, economically, politically, in a way that keeps up with all of these major technological changes that are rapidly transforming the battlefield? Primarily, I'm thinking of drones and AI, but it's it's really a whole number of things. So that's how do we innovate? What are the barriers in the appropriations process to overcome? And importantly, how do we build that supply chain from high-end chips to AI to miniaturization, you name it, in a way that's resilient to black swans, the unexpected events, conflict in the Pacific and elsewhere? Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Charles Q. Brown, simply put it as accelerate, change, or lose. Mike Brown, let's start with you. You were the head of the Defense Innovation Unit that may end up coordinating a number of these replicator programs. How do you understand the replicator initiative and why is it important? Well, let's start with what's a real positive, which is the Department of Defense recognizing that it has to change. And this is uh, symbolized by Kathleen Hicks making a major announcement, announcing this initiative as replicator of saying, now we need some attritable things and we need to bring them in mass. So this is very different from our traditional, let's field large, expensive weapons platforms like an F- Can we say disposable? Is that fair? Yeah, disposable. Same same thing. Yeah. Andy Walworth, who hosts the political podcast, was yelling at me for using a, a $20 word like attritable. Let's, let's use disposable so people know what we're talking about. Disposable systems. <laughs> disposable uh, is important here because it is in contrast, again, with the large defense platforms, F-35s, Virginia-class submarines, those type of things, which we keep in the field right. for decades, maybe 50 years, right. and require a very large sustainment strategy to go along with fielding those large weapon platforms. Here we're talking about something completely different, more along the lines of what we as consumers enjoy. Think about your iPhone. There's no sustainment strategy for iPhone 4 you bought a decade ago. You replace it. So that's the key. Right. Uh, what can we buy in a large quantity that is disposable? Uh, and that keeps up with current capability and technology that, frankly, provides an element of surprise to our adversary rather than fielding the same old equipment. I say same old. It's pretty exquisite equipment, but it's something that in many cases right. uh, the Chinese have stolen designs for. 
and uh, have seen us operate with for years. So that's the positive is the department recognizing that there's so many things that we'll dig into here talking about what are the challenges to implementing this. But to simplify that, I would just start with the department needs to start buying more of this type of uh, capability from commercial vendors to be able to make change quickly, meaning in the next two or three years instead of the next two or three decades, you're going to have to leverage a commercial base. And that implies uh, that the department's going to need to shift how it uh, budgets for these items. So I'll just say simply, if the department starts buying more from new commercial vendors, it will create the right shift in our capitalistic system to handle a lot of the things that you talked about in terms of do we get the right signals to the supply base to build the right suppliers? Do they start ramping their production capability? Frankly, you're seeing the fact that we have not done that in the munitions area as we try and supply Ukraine and now Israel. It's creating a real uh, crunch for us. So if we start buying more and traditionally the department, two thirds of what it procures, it buys from only six vendors. So if we start widening that base and buying more of what is called for in Replicator, the other things will happen naturally. The only thing that probably won't happen naturally is the process with Congress to change the budget. So you mentioned appropriations. It's the biggest inhibitor we have to national security today is the fact that we don't have an agile or fast uh, budgeting process. It takes three years to program one dollar of spending at DOD. That's within the commercial life cycle of the kind of capabilities right. replicators are asking for, meaning a company won't even have. Uh, will have already finished its first product generation by the time the department would get around to buying the first article. So am I right in saying that for Replicator, there's not new appropriations necessarily that are being sought, that they're pulling from a number of other programs and part of which might go through DIU where, where you were? Is that is that true? Is that your understanding? Yes, that is what uh, Kathleen has called for. And I think that is one of the issues we should talk about. What major change happens at the Department of Defense without any allocation of resources explicitly. So how do I, if, if it's going to be a major change to how we're uh, fielding a capability, how will that happen without a change in the budget? Or you're not going to do that by, as uh, uh, General Paul Selva, the former chairman, uh, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs said to me, shaking the couch cushions to see what falls loose. <laughs> That's not the way to start a major program. Yeah. yeah. Right. Especially in the current political environment. Admiral Selby, I mean, the Defense Department has never been known for fast and cheap. How do you see reducing what is often a decade long, you know, cycle from from idea to deployment uh, to 18 to 24 months? I mean, is that even really possible with what they're calling for? Yeah. I mean, so Mike, Mike talked about the, the budgetary issues, the three three or so years of what it takes to get a dollar program. But that's, you know, that's after you've already done all of your requirements, definition, validation of need, analysis of alternatives, all of the different steps that are required prior to actually asking for that money. And so that gets you to that, you know, it could be five-ish to 10-ish years paying upon the size of the platform. Oh, and then on top of that, if it's a large complex warship or airplane, you've got construction span times, which can go five, six, seven years for a, for a new platform. So you're, you're talking sometimes, you know, upwards of two decades before you actually have a new thing. If you're trying to build a very complex thing, like a warship or a high-end fighter. Now, as I talk about this, first, I'm going to push back on something. I, I don't like the term disposable. Okay, good. I don't like that. Good. Why I, I is think that? that sounds like it's, I think it sounds like it's a cheap, cheap throwaway. I don't, I don't think it's a cheap <laughs> throwaway. Because I, I think when, when I think about a tritable, I think about two aspects of a tritable. First of all, I'm trying to attrite the adversary's ability to defend because I'm going to throw so much stuff at them that he, he or she cannot, they're just going to tilt. And so I'm going to attrite their ability to fight. And I will also attrite Every single weapon system they've got that has to try to take out and prosecute all these thousands of things that I'm going to try to throw their way. So it's a tradable from the perspective of, yes, the thing that I'm I'm buying or procuring, if I lose it, it's okay. It's, it's, it's in your words, disposable or a throwaway. But really, it's more importantly, I'm trying to attrite their forces and their capacity by throwing so much stuff at them that they cannot they cannot ignore it. And they're going to end up prosecuting all these things, a lot of it with ordinance. And that is, that's some of the value in this whole thing. So, but back to, kind of to your question about can the Defense Department 
can it do this in 18 months? Can you do something like this that fast? Uh, I think it depends. Um, it really, it really depends. And I think it's, it's going to come down to, uh, do we single up lines on, on, on a one or, or maybe a couple, but in my mind, it should be one single empowered individual who has the, uh, the direct connectivity to the, the Secretary of Defense in this case. Uh, Doug Beck does have that. So there's goodness in that model, the way they've arranged this now with uh, with Doug reporting the SecDAF. Will they give that individual, if it turns out to be Doug, will they give him the actual monies that are required, the authorities that are required? And will they, quite frankly, tell the rest of the building to get out of the way? Because traditionally what will happen is that a new program like this is announced and I've already I've already heard from people that this is what's happening. Everybody in the building starts or starts saying, "Oh, we're doing replicator." And so you you find that as they develop their quad charts for whatever program they're trying to defend, they start stamping replicator, just like they started stamping RPED on, on the thing when Heidi Shu announced the RPED program. And so there becomes this: uh, the knives and forks come out, all trying to get their share of the pie, trying to justify that they're already doing that. And what invariably happens is because because there's not usually a single empowered individual, there tend to be committees of individuals, and they tend to want to try to make everybody a little bit happy. And in so doing, nobody is really all that happy. And and that's unfortunately the way this will probably play out, unless again, they really do something drastically different. The other thing they have to do is they have to take this entity, whether it's Doug or some other organization that does this, and it has to be disconnected from the Pentagon. And that that leader mm. needs to be told, your job is to defeat the existing US DOD in 18 months. That's your job. And 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 basically get out of the way and let let him or him or her go do that. And Congress has got to support that as well. And that's a that's a lot of a lot of ifs that have to happen to make this successful. That's why I'm 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 skeptical that it will, because I think we're trying to make this very much like every other program we've tried to do in the past. And if that's the case, I think it will fail. And I'm, I'm not happy to say that. Steve Blank, I want to ask you that same question from the other side. You've started a lot of businesses in Silicon Valley. You've literally written the book on lean startups. Those are not typically words that are used in a defense context. What is the fundamental difference, the mindset difference between innovating on a commercial timeline versus a defense acquisitions timeline? So a couple of things, you know, I I thought of the replicator announcement as kind of a glass half full and glass half empty announcement. Um, you know, it's kind of like uh, the U.S. Army announcing that perhaps we shouldn't have cavalry anymore in 1938. Um, you know, when the world is pretty clear that that it moved on about 15 years earlier. You, you know, I think the lessons from the battlefield in Ukraine are like so in your face were kind of surprised in Silicon Valley, we're still having the conversation about, you know, the role of drones versus, uh, and the role of new concepts of operation. I mean, if you just take the lessons that are being learned in, in Ukraine, they're basically going through an OODA loop every 30 days. You know, there's major shifts in technology in the battlefield, uh, and that companies and organizations that can't adjust to the rapid advances in technology are going to be left behind. That just doesn't match the requirement cycle and the PBE and anything else we've built. And that goes back to your question about, you know, about innovation. And <clears throat> we have uh, built a, a system in the DOD of world-class people and world-class organizations uh, that uh, just simply don't match the world we have. Um, I mean, that's just what's fundamentally broken. Uh, the world moves in 30-day cycles now. Um, that's a major impedance match, um, mismatch with what we actually have. And, and I, I take that all the way back to um, a leadership problem. Um, we've not declared that we're in a crisis. Um, if, if we declared we were in a crisis in 2027 in, in um, Indo-PACOM, we'd be doing very different things with very different people with very different organizations at very different speeds. We wouldn't use the organizational impediments as excuses. We'd either bypass them, you know, use other authorities we have, um, you know, from the president using emergency production act authorities and, and other things, and just standing up new organizations with new people, as Admiral Selby suggested. Um, you know, Ukraine's industrial base went from seven companies producing drones to now over 215 months. 
I mean, pretty amazing thing. I mean, I'm not sure we could do that. Um, you know, the drones, we, we kind of tend to give them rather than theirs, uh, don't really perform well in a tactical environment. Our systems are expensive and more importantly, haven't been tested in a realistic threat environment, meaning, you know, jamming, EW, um, no GPS, etc. cetera. Um, you, you know, I've heard the quoted from Ukraine as we do in three days what NATO does in three years. That's probably equivalent to what the DOD does in 10 um, or 15. Um, I've heard a quote that Ukraine consumes as many as 10,000 drones a month. Right. And, and, and so, so to take this all the way back, again, world-class people, world-class organization for a world that doesn't exist, this is a failure of leadership, not just a failure of organizations. Um, we don't seem to be able to differentiate between things that need to be on 30-year cycles and things that need to be on 30-day cycles. And we don't have the organization and processes to do that. Now, that's ironic because in Silicon Valley, that is the cycle that Mike and I grew up in and lived in and, you know, day to day is we know how to do this. This isn't like magic. Um, there are and in fact, the, the irony is, of course, the DOD stands up these types of organizations in crisis, whether it was uh, the rapid equipping force or whether it was the Jake or whether it was that whatever. And we tend to crush them when they get inside the building and we no longer have those crises. What we really need to do is actually, uh, again, as Admiral Selby said, figure out how to stand up organizations that, um, that whose goal is to deliver capabilities rapidly, literally uh, using Ukraine as a maybe a, a proxy for what we need to do in Indo-PACOM. And I'll jump to maybe a, a conclusion that would be interesting to hear everybody else's opinion. A quick organizational fix would just to be bypass the, a lot of this stuff. And in, in, in this case, have Indo-PACOM be the customer um, rather than going through all the offices uh, in, in the DOD, one, one could imagine. Uh, you, you've actually read my mind. I mean, I, th that's kind of where I wanted to go was are a lot of the challenges a function of scale and standardization? You know, when you buy anything for the U.S. military, you multiply it by six or seven or, you know, more zeros it, 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 that can be crushing to a small company. And it really creates this ecosystem where you've got these, these contractors that there's only six or so because they're these massive, massive entities that can actually deliver on that kind of scale. But if you're in special warfare, for example, if you're the Navy SEALs, you know, a unit can, you know, requisition, uh, you know, a, a specific brand of night goggle that they like, or even a, a knife. They, you know, they like a specific knife. They, they can have, you know, but the part, part of that is because you're talking about a lot fewer numbers. Uh, you know, all, all of that is kind of a function of like, how do you support logistics? Like you, to do things on a massive scale, you have to have standardization at some point. But along the lines of what you're talking about, Steve, should we let go of the idea of standardization on some level and maybe even have, you know, on the, I don't know if on the unit level, but maybe at least on the, you know, battalion level or, you know, or smaller, you know, say you can try something different that the battalion next to you doesn't have. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the that's the classic conundrum of, uh, you know, the U.S. did this in the 1950s. If you remember, we had four generations of bombers, three generations of aircraft carriers. I mean, the Century Series of fighter planes, which, you know, I think were five or six from the F-100, F-105, F-whatever. Um, and, you know, the, the whole history goes back to McNamara, who was the CFO of, of Ford, comes in and goes, well, this is great, but how are we going to sustain it? How are we going to pay for maintenance? How are we going to pay for operations? This thing's out of control. Every service was doing their own thing. And and essentially, we're still living with the legacy of PPE and, m more importantly, the .mlpf thing that says, what are the life cycle costs and, and how do we do all this stuff? And, and so the answer is, uh, I'll give you mine, is I think we need to have a parallel system. And I think Mike has talked about this a lot, where we can use commercial authorities and we know how to write contracts and we know how to deliver things. You know, Mike, I'll let you, you know, expand Yeah, Mike, on. you wanted to jump in here. Yeah, this yeah, was your I, idea, Mike. Yeah, uh, Steve's absolutely right. Uh, I find myself often agreeing with Steve. Uh, well, then we should, we're real, then the country's really in trouble, I. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> John, to your point, we should differentiate between where do we need to standardize? Because you're right, the Department of Defense is a big organization. You can't have every group out buying its own thing. We have some organizations, Navy SEALs, 
frankly, the whole special operations community that does have a culture and a system to buy some things that are different from the rest of, of DOD. But I don't think it's so much uh, where do we need to standardize as to Steve's point, we need to have multiple speeds uh, optimized for different things. So, you know, we could talk about how are we going to how are we going to reform the process to make it better for buying the next generation fighter or the next submarine. There's plenty we could talk about there, but we need to very quickly figure out how do we buy the capabilities that uh, the departments call for in replicator and others, commercial satellites, AI software. There's any number of commercially developed capabilities that we need to go at a different speed. Uh, and what's happened to the Defense Department since the time of McNamara, you know, 60 years ago, is at, if you go back in history to that time, the department was developing the technology it needed for the most part. It wasn't buying a lot from the consumer or commercial world. So example, the semiconductor industry, that was basically developed by the Department of Defense and NASA. Uh, in the mid-60s, a third of industry output went to the Apollo program, a third of the semiconductor output. Today, uh, the space program and DOD would be buying 1% of the industry output. So it's the, the world has changed from the department developing its own technology to the department needing to buy what the commercial world has developed, because now some of the leading technologies the department needs, if you think about AI, cyber tools, drones, that's being developed in the commercial world and often the consumer world. So the department's systems, its its way of operating, budgeting, procuring, as Steve said, comes out of the 1960s. So no surprise that that's not very well suited to buying this different type of capability that's developed on a much more rapid time frame that uh, is attributable. <laughs> We're not suited for that. That's what we need to change. And those capabilities are not developed for a specific service like the Army or the Navy. They're developed for a wider commercial market. So then the department needs to figure out where's the home for that, that we're going to buy it, standardize across the department, but we don't need an Army version, a Navy version, an Air Force version of these drones. That needs to be uh, coordinated. And then we need to budget for those. I've called it a capability of record rather than a program of record. A program's one set of requirements bought by one vendor, sometimes for 40 or 50 years. No, that, that may work, not that well, but it, you can work for a submarine. <laughs> uh, but for a drone, no, I'm going to need to update that as the commercial market brings me new capability. So that's where we need a capability of record. So some changes like that that the department could make would allow you to operate at this different speed or commercially developed capability. Steve. Yeah, so let me double down with with what Mike said with maybe one addition that I think is coming out of the Ukraine um, is that these, uh, let's use drones as an example, these commercial drones, which we thought would be great as dual use uh, um, products, haven't been tested in a realistic threat environment. And, and in fact, <clears throat> we really don't have a great test bed uh, that doesn't take years to uh, so instead, we throw them out to Ukraine and they kind of throw up their hands and go, well, that look, look great on paper in Palo Alto, but, you know, you got GPS jamming and you got all this other stuff going on. And, um, you know, maybe you guys should have been testing these things against something realistic. So I would take what Mike said. And, and I think the DOD contribution could be a rapid learning uh, environment and a rapid threat test bed um, that could, and I'm not talking about years, I'm talking about literally a month of putting things through lessons learned from the battlefield. Um, and I think that's the, again, the impedance mismatch of, we think we have dual use stuff. We we have a real-time battlefield that these lessons need to be, uh, be implemented quickly. That would be the only thing I would say on top of what Mike said. Uh, I, well, also just yeah, going back to this discussion about, um, should we have things that are the same or have some heterogeneity? And I do think that for large complex things that do have a long sustainment tail, uh, commonality is, it makes sense from a supply chain parts perspective, and you need to kind of maintain some control there, or it does become an untenable situation. You just can't afford to maintain. Uh, but when you talk about some of these, you know, these attributable type things, I think heterogeneity is actually a very powerful strength because again, if you're going to be throwing these things up against an adversary and mass, 
the more differences there are, the better. Because again, it's going to confuse and confound them even more with how they target, how they identify, how they attack and prosecute. Additionally, if you if you develop these, you know, in a totally digital engineering world with a lot of advanced manufacturing techniques, then you can very rapidly iterate on the design and change it in stride. Uh, you know, more to the, you know, the Silicon Valley model of 30 day kind of stride. So as the adversary starts to get an understanding of how these things operate, you can be in the back end changing and modifying. So the next time they see them a month from now, they do something totally different or they look totally different. So I think that is incredibly important to maintain. Um, and I should do, the Navy be building ships that are basically a bunch of uh, 3D manufacturers, you know? Well, I, I do think there's, there's some room for that. Not, uh, maybe not a full up, you know, destroyer, right. but I certainly think some of these smaller uh, uh, trittable type things, absolutely. There should be some degree of advanced manufacturing, whether that's 3D printing or some other advanced manufacturing techniques. Absolutely. I think that should be a part of it. In fact, Steve and I have been talking for a couple of years now about a shipyard of the future concept. What what if you started with a, a you know a green field and said, I'm gonna I'm gonna build a shipyard of the future from the beginning to the end. I think it would look totally different than any of the shipyards you have today. And again, it would take into account a lot of these digital engineering principles, robotics, a lot of automated tooling, uh, advanced manufacturing techniques, 3D printing, all of that. I think it would be different. Um, and, and I think um, a lot of people say, well, can we go do that to an existing shipyard? And I I don't think you can. I think to try to throw digital on top of a very heavily industrial system, you're going to get incremental gains. Don't get me wrong. You will improve some flows and some different things, but you're not going to get that really revolutionary, you know, 10x kind of improvement by doing it that way. I think you have to start kind of from the beginning to do that. Um, hey, let me let me make a quick comment here about the the six defense primes or the the small number of defense primes. I think this is really. Uh, representative of the entire U.S. economy. Okay. So we have become very monolithic in our, all of our sectors. So whether it's automotive, you know, airplanes, uh, hell, dishwashers, TVs, whatever. It's very monolithic. It's, there's a very few number of companies that do these things. They have very, very deep tall stovepipes that lock in the second and third tier vendors with these, you know, very restrictive NDAs where they can't maneuver too far out of their own way. And so it's, they're very, it's very hard for them at the very low bottom of that tier, third or fourth tier to do anything but support that one prime that they're locked into. That is not advantageous to the world we live in today. And I truly believe that if you change the whole model, took the whole model and turn it on its side, I think you could revolutionize everything from manufacturing, electronics, every sector in this economy. And I think you would actually find that we would be able to accelerate and maneuver faster than anybody else on the planet. And you know, imagine a world where you have hundreds of small vendors that can supply kind of the different component piece part components, whether it's circuit boards or small motors or or small components for, you know, whether it's a triple systems or large, large aircraft. And you could have these arrayed in a way where they are feeding their components in to different hubs around the nation where they develop larger subcomponents for the the full end unit that's going to be developed somewhere else. And I think you could totally revolutionize the entire economy. I mean, it would take tax incentives and all kinds of restructuring price and interstate commerce law changes. But I think you could actually ignite this US economy in a way that it has not been ignited probably since the end of World War II. And I, and I think we need that now more than ever. You know, I think what Admiral Selby is talking about is a whole-of-nation approach. Um, and, and DOD tends to look internally to their budget and say, well, that's the sum of what we have to spend, and here are the vendors that we spend it with. You know, have, you know Admiral Selby just described a distributed approach to, to, you know, a series of vendors. One could also imagine, you know, like, how do we get another $100 billion of virtual capital into the DOD budget? And no one is engaged to private equity at scale. And, you know, Admiral Selby and I have talked about how do we get people to build these new shipyards? And, and what would the incentives for someone building 21st, shipyard, 21st century shipyards look like? What's the commercial incentive and what's the tax break incentive? And then you just think about it, and who's the largest satellite manufacturer in the world? Turns out it's not the DOD. It's not at Primes. It's not Lockheed or Northrop Grumman. It's it's uh, SpaceX and and um, and Starlink. Well, you know that that should be a shining example of how do we get other pieces of of things that normally the DOD would be arguing about budget and and figuring out how to use the rest of the nation, the rest of their economy. You know, we're competing with China with one hand tied behind her back. And it's, I think, a lack of an Im- imagination. And in fact, 
it's a lack of imagination and turf at the same time is because imaginative things threaten the status quo, right? And the status quo is, you know, how many people do I have reporting to me? Is it my budget? Is it my headcount? Is it my status, et cetera? You know, as an example, the Navy's tried to stand up this uh, disruptive capability office and every antibody in the world has come out to try to kill it. The N9 hates it. RDA doesn't want it to exist. I mean, the people trying to stand up the office are ready to quit and go home. When in fact, the, the CNO said this is the most important thing the Navy should be doing. Um, this is where I go back to this takes leadership, imagination, and, and, um, and I don't want to use the, the, the phrase, but something the size of grapefruits to, to take on the status quo and say we need to change. This is not business as usual. And I think the closer you get to Indo-PACOM, the more that's understood. And the closer you get inside the buildings with no windows and Pentagon and other places, it seems to be another day at the, at the office where paperwork takes six months to get across the building. Right. Another dimension uh, uh, or way of looking at this is we need competition. We need more competition at every level in our system. Admiral Selby's right. Uh, that's going to take uh, tax incentives. Uh, probably we're going to have to think about what incentives are going to create so that we stimulate more competition. But our American system, if we let it go to work and put more competition at every level, will create the right answer for us. Well, I think that defense procurement is really one of the areas of the national budget that really runs up philosophically against free market principles. It, you have to have some sort of national industrial strategy on some level to to handle this. And I mean, just to dive into the economics a little bit, I mean, you've, you've all been involved in venture capital in some way or shape or form. Let's say you've got one of these small companies that is uh, trying to compete with one of these massive contractors. Their pocketbooks are much shallower. Uh, there's the money you need to maybe start an idea, but then there's that whole valley of death idea where you know maybe you had a good idea but you're you're waiting on the slow grinding sausage mill of of government and congress to actually get you up to a scale where you can be profitable let alone restrict your 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 dual use you know in a moment they could say oh no that's you know you that's non-exportable or uh it's it's got to be restricted to to defense only or or something like that H how do and i i you know this is a question really for all three of you is how do you structure the economics that both as you say mike harness the power of the market at the same time the government's got to pick some winners and losers in in terms of who they're giving money to so that smaller companies can buffet the storms of economics that that you know the big ships of these giant contractors are are much better able to handle. So it's 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 really two things, and we've already talked about it. Number one, the different speed that you go at to procure commercial capability. So we're not talking about a submarine here. We're talking about commercial satellites, AI software, drones. So for that class of capability, we need a different speed, a different system. We already described it here. So if we do that at the Pentagon and we start buying that capability. Today, a lot of the vendors that are producing that kind of capability are involved in prototypes and experimentation, but not large production contracts. If we start diversifying that vendor base, uh, yes, the top six will lose some proportion, a small proportion up front of what they're used to supplying, but that will start all of the right uh, uh, mechanisms in place to create more competition, more investment from venture capitalists like myself to invest in those companies, to expand their capacity. The supply chains will expand. All of the right things will happen. But the Pentagon has to use its buying power to change uh, the uh, monolithic structures uh, that we have that, uh, that Lauren just talked about. Those are the two things that need to change. And then we'll be able to create a much more competitive, filled with more capability, uh, ability to move faster uh, type of uh, uh, defense department that we need. And I think to try try to help facilitate that, you have to, you kind of have to narrow the field down, right? You, you can't just solve world hunger here. So back to Steve's, <clears throat> Steve's original point about, hey, let's pick the Pacific fleet. Let's, let's pick one AOR, area of responsibility. Let's pick one empowered commander, PACOM commander, PAC fleet commander, probably both combined, but Paparo's going to fleet from one to the other here, hopefully, eventually, anyway. But I think you pick that individual and you start defining their problems. And again, this is another thing we don't do in the building. We want to define a requirement. 
And I've been saying for a couple of years now, okay, requirements are good for big, complex, billion dollar things. I still want the comp. I want that because before I start doing contracts, cutting steel, I want to make sure I got the blueprint right. But when I'm doing these other things that are tradable, it's about solving problems and it's trying to find commercial approaches. Maybe there's a DOD lab somewhere that's done something. Maybe it's academics, whoever. I don't care. I want to define a problem, go find a solution. And I want to set up a battle lab just like we have in Ukraine right now, I want to set up a battle lab, maybe one out of, out of Okinawa somewhere, somewhere in the Pacific. And I want to have a, a, some commander that's in charge of that. I jokingly co- told the CNO uh, that, you know, you should make me the eighth fleet commander. He said, what's that? I said, that's a commander who's in charge of basically experimentation for the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps, because I think we ought to do it together on the Navy because we're naval. Uh, but you need to have somebody who's empowered to be that experimentation lead, whose job is to work with the warfighters, to find out the problems, Go find solutions, have some kind of a contract agent somewhere that provides the contracting services and the money to procure those things. Maybe initially you just you just lease them to go try them out. And if you like them, you want to scale them, maybe you buy them, maybe you, maybe a lease for the service. You, you say, I'm going to pay you a day dollar for every, every day you have that sensor in that box, I'll pay you a, a certain amount of money. But you need a new model. Steve. So I think what Admiral Selby just described is uh, uh, organizations that could uh, that exist in parallel to the existing execution and PBE requirements driven thing that are in charge of rapid uh, innovation delivery to the battlefield um, and, and or the almost battlefield and with some time constraint. That is the thing we don't talk about well is time. Um, and, and so if we're talking about 30 year things, we have processes for that, but we don't have processes for 30 day things. I'm going to go back to this yet. We've built those organizations and we keep shutting them down. What Admiral Selby just described was the rapid equipping force in Iraq and Afghanistan. The problem is, is that senior leadership has grown up in an execution world. That is, if you've asked, if you asked people who spent their careers building requirements based systems or, or living in that, it's kind of hard for them to imagine a world that exists that does something very different. But I think this is going to take something, either an act of Congress or the SECDEV, to actually permanently empower these parallel organizations that Admiral Selby uh, describes, because the existing bureaucratic weight kills them. And again, as I said, we're having this battle right now inside the Navy with the, the disruptive capability offices instead of reporting to the vice CNO has just been shoved down to the N9B where they don't even have a travel budget anymore. Um, it's, but every time you create a new office or you create a new parallel commander, aren't they all just now competing for space at the trough? I mean, I guess I, what I'm hearing from you, Steve, is it, it really needs to be marching orders from the top to, to yeah, transform. So, so this is what what we lack all the time. This is what these organizations die. This is why Ref died, why the Jake died and whatever is senior leadership really doesn't appreciate or understand the difference between execution and innovation at high speed. And, and, and again, they come visit Silicon Valley and they see the shiny objects, but what they miss is the rapid lean innovation and agile cycle of actually delivering things rapidly and learning from each one of those that says, oh, we got that wrong or, or literally putting you know, folks right in front of the, the pointy edge of the battlefield to understand customer needs. It said, oh, do you have this great shiny object from the startup, but it really hadn't been tested against the real threats. Great. Let's go do that. It said, that's a different skill set. That's a different mindset. That's different learning. It embraces. And again, saying we're embracing failure, that's the wrong word. We're embracing learning and discovery. And, and we're differentiating between things that need to be fail safe versus environments where it's safe to fail and we could rapidly learn. Um, that really requires both different mindset, different org structure, different people, different different budgeting. And, and as Mike tried to build in DIU, different relationships with all the new technologies that are actually driving the uh, next generation of, of what we're facing. Mike? Yeah, I think as Steve suggests here, it's not an initiative or a task force. You really have to institutionalize this at DOD. That's why uh, when uh, Lauren and I wrote an article for War in the Rocks on the head strategy, our first recommendation was we have to create a new undersecretary for uh, commercial innovation and technology adoption because we don't have that capability institutionalized. That's the different speed. It's the different people that Steve just alluded to. If you don't make that kind of change uh, that incorporates 
a lot of the good activity that's happened at DIU, at the Strategic Capabilities Office, what's happening right now at the uh, the successor to the Jake, which is the Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office. If you don't in- really uh, make sure those organizations are well-resourced with the right people uh, and the right budget, and you make that a part of how the department does business, you're not going to achieve the kind of change uh, that we need. Let's talk for a second about chips. Uh, the U.S. leads in design, but not in manufacture. How concerned are each of you about the concentration of manufacturing in precisely the theater that we're most concerned about uh, as as being the next major spark point? Yeah, I mean, I, it's got to be a tremendous concern. I, but I would it's not just limited to chips. Chips is, I mean, don't get me wrong very important. But this spans the industrial base. I mean, if you look at just the, the submarine industrial supply base right now, we've got various choke points where we've got, we're down a single or maybe two, but that's kind of it in a couple very critical technologies. And I'm not going to mention what they are here, but that is a concern. Um, help just think about all of the offshoring of the industrial, you know, processes that we've done over the last several decades, steel manufacturing, help just just mining just just the rare earths we need to support a lot of these electronics um, a lot of those are from china we, we've got to find ways to counter that now the good news is there are some folks out there looking around the globe right now trying to find other pockets of this and trying to find ways to either bring some of it back to the u.s or bring it to a friendly nation where we can we can rely upon it in the future so it is a huge concern and yes of course chips is a, is a particular concern with with taiwan potentially being under the under the gun from from the prc uh that that would be a tremendous impact to the entire globe not just the u.s economy the entire globe yeah i mean so something like 70 percent of high-end chips are all from taiwan all from one vendor uh tsmc and taiwan right, that's right one vendor if, if, if there's efforts to expand that production capacity in the u.s but i mean it's a fraction that's right that's right but lauren's right if we don't want this to happen to us again uh which means we're kind of figuring out what do we need to do with supply chains? Why do we not have capabilities developed as a nation? We really have to think about long. We need to think longer term and we need an industrial strategy as a as a nation that's focused on our high technology industries. This happened because of what our capital markets reward. They reward very short term performance kind of designed uh, in the Milton Friedman era. That's where everyone is our friend. And we can trade anywhere a world. The world is flat. Well, that's changed on us now with the uh, revisionist powers of Russia and China, particularly China, because they're such an important manufacturer in the world. So we, we have to think about what capabilities do we need as a nation. And then we need the right incentives there that really are not the incentives that our capital markets uh, reward. If you're a CEO and you're thinking about long-term national capabilities, uh, and that's going to cost you a couple of pennies per share per quarter. You're going to be replaced in our in our system. And so there's no connection here between what are the capital markets rewarding and what are our companies doing and what capabilities we need as a nation. China's thinking about that because they have a 30-year plan for what capabilities they want in place, and they're making investments behind that. They're not all successful. They're not an efficient uh, user of capital, but they have a national plan, and it's based on technology, because technology is what they see as the ability to improve their economy and create a better national security. We don't have anything equivalent. Steve? Yeah, I, I think Mike actually nailed it. I mean, when we were the only superpower, you, you know, uh, optimizing shareholder returns became the national mantra rather than national security. And China just you know, watch that and decided that they had a different strategy. And this was a bipartisan thing. Both Republicans and Democrats optimized, you know, offshoring and moving jobs. And we had lots of consequences about, you know, not only gutting our, our core industries, but all the subsidiary ones. But no one ever mentioned national security. And while we were busy chasing non-nation states, uh, China basically created, I, I should mention the thing that, that blows me away and is a uh, it's a little orthogonal, but but maybe useful for your listeners. We used to talk about offset strategies in the United States, how proud we were, what we did to the Soviet Union with um, using semiconductors and stealth and, and ISR to offset the, 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 the Soviets in the Cold War. No one has uh, embarrassingly pointed out that China has done at least five offset strategies to the U.S., uh, everything from DF-21s and now DF-26s targeting carriers to building islands in the South China Sea to lots of other things. Um, you know, the 
uh, holes in the Gobi Desert and about uh, breakout strategies for uh, ICBMs. Um, so we've stopped talking about offset strategies, but we should actually be uh, talking about them loud and clear that we've been offset. And this whole conversation is how do we not just catch up, but how do we actually uh, reconfigure our Department of Defense and our industrial base uh, to, to actually be able to match the threat um, and the pace of the threat by not doing just more of the same? The, the other part of this that kind of segues into Replicator, I'm afraid we're simply going to use Replicator with the same operational concepts that we already have. I mean, the, the whole idea of, of, of building these thousands of things should be to kind of create a, a strategy that, that gives us a new set of operational concepts, not, not just the existing ones. And this is what Mike and Admiral Selby have been talking about for head strategies. That, that's right. And, that, and that's why I said you, you should use, empower this individual to try to use those technologies to defeat our own forces. So we learn from that. And in, in so doing, we can then turn those on anybody, anybody else in the world and beat them. I mean, that's, that's what this is really all about. Because you're not going to know how, you know, what are the new tactics, techniques, and procedures. And still you t- start playing with these things in mass, just like they're learning in Ukraine right now. I mean, they're learning how to use these things every single day. They're finding something new they can do with these things. I think it's amazing. Hey, hey here's the good news here. Okay. So, so this country, we've been in the corner before. And we figure this out. I mean, just you think about obviously the Manhattan Project being one example. You know, obviously that movie just came out this summer. It gets that's in everybody's mind. We, we, you know, again, you put General Groves in charge, one guy in charge. He brings in Oppenheimer, a bunch of other smart guys, and and look what they do in it. You know, in a couple of years, look at the Apollo program. Look at this: the vision of the president of the United States, the goal to go to the moon. You got the entire industrial base turned around and focused on what was thought to be impossible at the time, and we did it. Think about Rick over in the nuclear navy. Now he this is a, that's obviously a very unique one because he wasn't really he wasn't really told to do that. He just kind of did it. He just did it. But he was able to in the course of five or so years, he invented materials that did not even exist that were required for us to develop that submarine, the Nautilus. We can do this if we are if we have a vision, have a goal, unify as a nation behind the purpose. And right now, with the threats we're facing around the globe, man, it's it's time to come together, folks, and <laughs> let's go let's go do this because I know we can. Well, I love Admiral Selby's optimism and and uh, uh, <laughs> march forward. The three of you are evangelists, if I can use that word for. Uh, this for head strategy and for transforming our industrial base in this way. For each of you, what is your next specific target? Are you, is it Secretary Austin? Is it General Gross? I mean, who needs to be convinced? Is this a congressional problem? Is it a White House problem? Is it a Pentagon problem, Steve? So, you know, if if, uh, your listeners haven't read uh, uh, a battle on the Potomac, the story about how we got uh, Goldwater Nichols. It's it's probably worth uh, worth a read or reread. Mm, right. You know, if this was a a perfect world, we'd have the next Goldwater Nichols to stand up by authority and 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 inside the NDAA, this parallel organization we've kind of all been talking about. Um, because at the same time, uh, the Congress was doing it. The uh, president uh, stood up the Packard Commission which uh, was a presidential commission that came up with the same set of conclusions. Um, and, and remember the, you know, Goldwater Nichols started with simply trying to reform the joint chiefs and ended up creating the combatant commands. It was an unexpected consequence of, of relooking at a strategic level about are we organized for the, for the fights we had and the, and the fights we're going to have. I, I, I think in a, in a perfect world that would happen in, in a kind of imperfect world, you'd have a sec, defense and a and a deputy secretary of defense who understands that this is not a replicator problem that it's a leadership problem and an organizational design problem um and that's harder but that's still possible i don't think we have that yet i think we have very as i said smart dedicated people it's not that we have people who are dumb or don't want the best interests of the country um um, you know, but there's an old quote, and then I'll give it back to Mike, is that, you know, it's hard to convince someone of something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. That's uh, Upton Sinclair, uh, you know, 100 years ago. <laughs> well, my pessimism, I, I want to believe, Admiral Selby, uh, my pessimism certainly comes out of just, uh, and all three of you guys have talked about this, about the the misalignment of the incentives. Yeah. 
Mike, if you're talking to Doug Beck at the IU or, or, you know, whoever uh, you see as the people on the inside of, uh, you know, carrying the flag for this sort of thing, what is your advice about how to overcome those institutional uh, inertia, those, those instant institutional problems that, that all of you have identified? Well, as far as uh, the advice to Doug Beck, uh, I think it would be twofold. Number one, uh, you have to figure out where a budget is coming from. That has to be worked with the Congress. So I don't think it's realistic to launch Replicator and say there's not going to be any budget changes. And second, you have to get the in our system today without uh, uh, what Steve just called for, uh, the next version of a Goldwater Nichols, the services have to be involved. So the the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the way we're configured today, those service secretaries um, and uh, and the uh, chiefs of staff, CNO, they have to be involved to make this more than just an initiative. But let's zoom out to your question before. What kind of a problem is this? The range of talking about the change incentives to our capital markets, what's our long-term industrial strategy, how do we compete with uh, an adversary of the scale, complexity, and long-term thinking of China? That's a national agenda issue. So this has to be front and center for the president, the Congress. And just like the Cold War unified the American people and our government to what we need to do, and we eventually developed a strategy there, we need the same thing now. China is already planning for 2049. We also need political leadership that is thinking about the long term and how do we pull together what we need, the incentives, the resources, the talent development, so that we can be successful as we think out 20, 30, 40 years. That's what we're missing today. Admiral Selby, Mike Brown, Steve Blank, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I I hope you'll be back on Hot Wash in the future. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. You can follow us on Twitter at Hot Wash RCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at realcleardefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen. Mm-hmm.